You're tuning in in time to hear a brief discussion of the doctrine of the fall of man, which in theology falls under the heading of anthropology, the study of man. And we have devoted considerable time on the last four previous broadcasts to the discussion of uh, anthropology as it is related to evolution, in particular with regards to the credibility of the Bible in the matter of creation and regards to the scientists who do not believe in the theory of evolution. We have pointed out, of course, from these previous broadcasts that a man is within his ranks to believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3 literally because this is the only scientific viewpoint available. Uh, the scientists may laugh at this, but a crackpot fanatic who's about half crazy, his opinion is not to be considered worth very much anyway. After all, science is supposed to be a correlated body of absolute truth which is demonstrable, demonstrable that you can demonstrate. Therefore, to a scientist, to talk about the science of origins, such as the universe and the solar system of man, is deluded talk of a crackpot fanatic. We don't have to accept it. We don't have to tolerate it. It's just nonsense. By his own definition of his own branch, he makes a living by science. He is unscientific. So we accept as scientifically correct in every detail the account of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and discard the entire body of scholarship and scientific uh, journal and reasoning and experiment since that time under the grounds that they never accomplish anything anyway. There isn't much point particularly in believing what they have to say. Now, somebody said, well, this caused the Dark Age uh, business of the persecution of Galileo and Copernicus. No, we don't persecute anybody. That was a church that did that. You get your history straightened out. Every time you call the people's attention the fact that the average scientist or physicist is a crackpot fanatic and a bigoted nut that doesn't know what he's talking about, then you run into these religious ecclesiastical bigots who think, well, back in the Dark Ages they opposed scientists, and now look all we found out that science said was true that the church didn't think was true such as the earth going around the sun. Well, suppose the sun went around the earth, what then? You see what I mean, Jelly Bean? Suppose you'd gotten the Venus or Jupiter, what then? You see, there's a great gap between the ecclesiastical bigot in a church who's trying to prevent knowledge from showing up and the Bible believer who knows a liar when he sees one. There's a big difference. And so we talk about scientific fact, we have, have to face the most demonstrable fact of all. And that is the fact that the entire body of scientists in Europe and America, working at breakneck pace for 400 years, have never solved one major problem of the human race. Now, don't you find that rather interesting? And before you make a god of this clown science and exalt him to the place where he does more than sell toothpaste ads, did you ever look at the demonstrable fact? Let's look at right straight in the face one time. Aside from giving some people jobs, and there always have been jobs available, and more jobs available with less scientific equipment than with the scientific equipment. When you computerize a thing, you put about 100 to 500 men out of work. I think we all know that. Now, let's just face the fact, like big grown-up men and women and boys and girls, shall we? Let's face an existential fact of scientific empiricism that's so objective that no scientist in the world can discuss it. Fact of the major problems of mankind, poverty, famine, religious disunity, war, debt, disaster, the entire body of scientists working on four continents for 2,000 years have never solved one single problem. You said they're working on it. They've been working on it for 4,000 years. What's the point? 
Why, somebody said, well, do you realize what they've done, these vast strides? No, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You mean vast strides in communication and transportation? You say, yes, which has brought about what? 37 wars in 20 years? Which has brought about what? The muzzling of free speech? What are you talking about? Did you know over eight-tenths of this world doesn't have freedom of the press or freedom of speech because of the vast transportation and communication improvements? Did you know there are more people in slavery right now than there were in 1850? Did you know that? That can be proved statistically by people who've been in the prisons. There's more slave gang and slave labor of genuine slaves right now than there was in 1850. Due to what? Well, you tell me. Let's just face it. Aside from providing a few medicines and hospital care for rich folks who can afford it for certain diseases to alleviate suffering temporarily or prolong death, science hasn't accomplished one thing since Galileo fell out of his crib. And who doesn't know that that can observe observable, demonstrable fact? You said they got to the moon. That took $25 billion a year money to bring back a piece of dead rock. Now, let's just face it like big grown-up men and women. A man who accepts Genesis 1 to 3 as a scientific account is so far ahead of any scientist that doesn't, you couldn't talk about him in the same breath. A man who accepts the pipe dream of Disneyland evolution and Mickey Mouse oh, evolution as taught by the leading evolutionists in America, let's just face it, he's just a deceived liar. And you say, well, can be proved in court? Why, of course. A high rumor of the Christian Science Research Foundation was taken to court on eight counts of the Bible, and the plaintiff was thrown out of court in all eight counts. The Christian Research Foundation has an offer of $1,000 to any man who can prove one scientific error in the Bible. They've been taken to court eight times on it. You didn't read about that court trial with James Bennett in New York, did you? No, all you got was the Spokes Monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee, where the hero of the press... The atheist, Clarence Darrow, who told a young man to commit suicide because life wasn't worth living, made a fool out of himself publicly for the Civil Liberties Union who were trying to push the Communist Party. The press has a funny way of putting things, don't they? Now, let's just face it, and we shall face it. Aside, are you listening? Some of you turn it off there, back because of your vicious prejudice against the truth. You said, I don't like the tone of your voice. I don't like the frame of your mind. Shall we start again? Aside from alleviating temporary suffering and prolonging life for a few rich people who can afford the hospital bill and the insurance, science has never solved one major problem of mankind since the first scientist sucked on a bottle. And the problems which were rampant in the days of Noah, Cain, and Abel are rampant today. And they're rampant today as they were in the days of Christopher Columbus, and rampant the days of Christopher Columbus as they were in the days of Solomon and David, Ezra, Nehemiah, and John the Baptist. And don't let these silly, deluded idiots kid you into thinking because they're moving faster and talking further, saying less, that science has done something. Science is a clown. And aside from providing a few people for jobs to make a living with, which the Army and Navy also supply, as well as the Ditch Diggers Union and the Truck Drivers Union, they have nothing to contribute at all. So in approaching Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, the safest thing to do is accept it as a scientific account and take the conflicting accounts written and taught and preached by the faculty members of state universities 
and throw them in the wastebasket. They'll be in fit company. The story of the fall of man is taught by other religions than Christianity, beside the Bible, but nowhere in the Bible is it presented in such a detailed doctrinal account. The other stories passed on by other religions may be distorted, but they do recognize the awful fact that something has gone wrong in man's downward plunge, and man is not plunging upward, although the silly fool thinks he is because his rockets are going upward. Notice how man always confounds transportation and communication with spirituality. Did you notice that? He always thinks if he's going up in the air, he's going up in the sense of being godly or being moral or being spiritual. Evolution creates problems rather than solve them. If Genesis is false, how do you account for the moral depravity and the sinfulness of man? Why easy. They go by the Fabian Society and go by the teachings of uh, uh, Freud and Jung and Pavlov and their relative scientists and pull out their psychotherapy and they, their change agents and their psychopoliticians and prove that man is not morally depraved and he's not sinful. How do you do this? You do this in the school by what they call situation ethics. What is situation ethics? Well, it's also called a, a re-evaluation. And uh, by evaluating and re-evaluating the ethical norms and standards of the meaningful, irrelevant mores, shall we cut the deck and deal? In junior high school and high school, the teachers are taught by the National Education Association to teach young people that no such thing is right or wrong. There's such a thing that a thing that works or doesn't work or can be adjusted or isn't adjusted, but the only sin is refusing to change and go along with the change agent of Soviet politics that came to the American educational system through SICUS and UNESCO. That's what's going on in the public school system. They're raising animals. And that's why there's no order in the classroom and no discipline in the classroom. And that's why the children can no longer be taught how to read and write. And that's why in the college entrance exam, they suddenly discovered that 80% of the people who graduated from high school can't write. They were given social promotions. They were put in a school under the uh, insane idea that since everybody was equal, that the races should be mixed. And once they got the thing mixed and got them in there, they found out that over half their people could not pass any kind of a test. So they gave them what they call a social promotion instead of a grade so they wouldn't feel bad and wouldn't feel inferior. As a consequence, you have a national and international disruption in business and utilities that is simply appalling. And I'm not talking about the dark side. I'm giving the bright side of it. Anybody who's had any dealings now with transportation, communication, and utilities and appliances and repair knows what happened since the Civil Rights Bill was passed. Why the inefficiency is horrendous. You couldn't even, you couldn't even, you don't know what you're doing half the time because the people you're dealing with don't know what they're doing half the time. How they get in this mess? They got in this mess by teaching that there's no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. Because they're afraid if they did that, they'd be teaching Bible or religion or Judeo-Christian ethics in the school. So they taught the young animal that it's right if it works, and if it doesn't work, it isn't right. That's pragmatism. Then they taught the kid what's right for you may not be right for somebody else, and what's right for somebody else may not be right for you. And that way they got rid of the Ten Commandments. And then they taught the kid, don't let your Sunday school and your preacher and your parents tell you what's right and what's wrong. Keep an open mind, and we'll tell you what we think. So you raise a generation of beasts. They live like animals. They walk like animals. They talk like animals. And they have the morals of an alley cat. 
And when I say they're little better than the beast in the jungle, I say that with apology as every decent gorilla that ever walked through the bushes. Evolution creates problems rather than solves them. If the genesis is false, how do you account for the moral depravity and the sinfulness of man? Simple. In the public school system, you just pretend it isn't there. You pretend the worst damage is done by holding the child down and curbing the child's appetites and disciplining him and putting pressure to bear upon him that you turn him into a freak and therefore the only way a healthy child, that's the big deal these days. You understand not moral. You understand not spiritual. Healthy. That's the deal. You understand not uh, not uh, right and wrong. See, not that. Values. You dig that, baby? And so when these morally depraved and sinful people come up, they to have the rain taken off when they're taught to do what they want to do as long as it doesn't damage somebody else. The catch being it always damages somebody else. They shut their eyes, pretend that human nature is not what it is, take off the range of restraint, and what happens? Federalized liquor, federalized drugs, eventually federalized pornography, a welfare state that will be reduced to a mass of mongrelized, passive Ottomans controlled by a central bureaucracy. That is the end of pretending that Genesis 1 to 3 is not a scientific account. Genesis 3 gives a full scientific account of the awful tragedy in the history of man, and of course it is history, and not Ergeschichte, as taught by Barth and Brunner and the German School of Rationalists. The story does not tell the advent of sin to the universe because Satan had already sinned and been cast out of the third heaven, according to Ezekiel 28, verse 12 to 15, and Isaiah 14, verse 9 to 14. But the scientific account tells how sin entered the human race and turned you into what you are. Some people look upon the story as an allegory. Well, it's too simple for that. Some look upon it as a myth. Well, you accept it as a myth at your own peril. When you accept it as a myth, you'll be tempted to accept Darwin, Lyle, Paley, and Huxley as the scientific truth, and the most mythological, legendary allegory you ever studied in your life is Darwin's theory of puddle to paradise. We look upon the account of scientific truth, and we accept it literally. We accept the curses of being certainly literal, for they're perfectly in evidence about us daily, weeds and perspiration. We have a demonstrable fact that the scientific account of Genesis 1 and 2 is 3 is right, and the scientists are wrong, as usual. Now, here's a man that says he doesn't believe it. Well, let's see what you're up against, son. The word eat or ate or eaten occurs in Genesis 3 more than 10 times. Now, let's stop and think about that. What book on religion, by any religion in the world, puts that much emphasis on your mouth? Now, think about that a while. Just before you go shooting off your mouth, let's stop and think. Isn't this the wildest fairy tale you ever saw in its accuracy? Isn't it strange how you people that don't believe the book spend all your lives trying to feed your mouths? Isn't that strange? Look about Freudian psychology and the libido and the id and the eros and all that nonsense. How do you account for the fact that whoever wrote the book of Genesis understood that the main trouble was man and mouth and begins with the mouth? How do you explain that? The Koran doesn't begin that way. The Talmud was written later. The Shastas and the Puranas of the Gahavad Gita don't begin that way. 
The Tripitaka, the Triple Basket, doesn't begin that way. The Analex Confucius doesn't begin that way. Why you people think the Book of the Dead is a religious book, well, it sure is off base, isn't it? They don't even know what the problem is. Why, according to the scientific out Genesis 1 3, the problem's your mouth. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, but the appetite is not filled. Out of the abundance of the man's heart, the mouth speaketh. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. He that loveth it shall eat the fruit thereof. What do you make of that? You die because of what, what you put in your mouth. You are what you eat. My, my, wasn't old Moe the scientific for a fellow writing an allegory? Isn't that a splendid allegory where when life begins, they're both naked? That's how your life began. Isn't that something? Why put in there the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed? Because that's the basic fundamental truth of all life. If there's any such thing as ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, according to Haeckel, it is certainly not that every individual baby goes as an embryo through the series of the species of evolution from the puddle to paradise. Oh, no. It's the fact when the Bible begins, it begins with the people naked, and that's how you began. And they begin by putting things in their mouths, and that's where you begin. And they begin by putting things in their mouths they shouldn't put in their mouths, which is where you began, and all your ancestors began, and all your grandchildren will begin. And when they were caught doing wrong, they hid, and that's what you did. And when they were caught, they blamed it on somebody else. Wouldn't you call that a remarkable foresight for a religious book to start that way? Why, some of you dumb nuts thinks that a religious book should start with the deity of Christ and the fundamentals of faith. you got a lot to learn, don't you? Why, some of you people think a religious book and the stuff you buy should begin with dissertations on how to overcome sensuality and attain spirituality by rising up through the eons of the mind and passing on the stages of thought where you become part of the corporeal universe to the infinite architect. No, man, it begins with your mouth and your belly. And that's where the Bible begins. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it amazing in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, the first thing the devil ever says is yes? How do you explain that? He doesn't say that in any of the rest of the world literature. Rather unique, wouldn't you say? The first positive thinker is Satan, and the first word he says is, yea. Don't you find that, as the Germans say, sehr interessant? Very interesting, don't you think? Satan operating through the serpent. It is a remarkable fact that serpents have been and still are to fear by man. Man is afraid of snakes, and a lover of snakes, like Gene Dixon, is looked at askance, brother. A man loves snakes, he's a certainly exception to the rule. About one out of about 500,000. And the pronoun he is used in Genesis 3-1 of Satan. The snake would have been it. So we have a case here of Satan operating through an animal. Did you ever see that on the screen, your late TV show? Isn't it amazing how much original material you can get out of the Bible where the writer is writing in 1500 years B.C. that you're just getting around to picking up through science. <laughs> Satan didn't appear in his own person. He appeared as a beautiful serpent, evidently, in the passage. 
Some said the serpent was the only creature that had the power of speech except man, Josephus. If that was correct, he would think it was a serpent speaking. This, of course, ignores the fact that when Satan appears, he appears as an angel of light. Satan made the attack when Adam and Eve were apart. He attacked the weaker vessel. He did it when she was near the forbidden place. Satan presented the temptation through legal appetites, inclinations, desires, for food knowledge. How do you explain that? I mean, you take some of you dumb psychiatrists that don't have a lick of sense. How do you explain the fact that the first temptation to do wrong was over an object about which everything was right? I haven't found that many psychiatric textbooks. I've read a few of them, not a lot of them. I finished Carl Menegar before I was 30 years old. Would you write me a letter about that? Tell me all about that, will you, boy? There wasn't one thing wrong with what he was tempted to do. Except there was an ultimate infallible authority that forbid it. Forbidden. Have you ever noticed when these fellows get so liberal going to college, they come out with this idea that that's what hurts people and causes people to be destroyed, is forbidding them things? Did you ever notice that? Do you ever notice how when the average college educator finishes, he's satanic in his approach to morals? Did you ever notice that? And did you ever notice that he got that way by questioning what God said? And that's the first thing that happens in Genesis 3. When the devil shows up, he says, Yea, hath God said? The first attack then in the universe by the prince of the powers of the air and darkness is an attack on what God said. And that's why all apostate fundamentalists are very anxious to let you know that they believe in the full, plenary, verbal inspiration of something they don't have and have never seen. They want to cover up the fact that they have questioned what God said to the tune of 30,000 times in one translation. The New American Standard Version, the International Version, the American Standard Version, recommended by every apostate fundamentalist in the Alexandrian cult in America today, makes more than 30,000 changes in the Word of God. Yea, hath God said? Satan began his attack by casting doubt upon the Word of God. He told her the tree would cause her to know good and evil, but failed to tell her she would lose the power to do good. There's some other things he failed to tell her. Now, there wouldn't be time on a brief broadcast of 30 minutes to discuss the matter in detail of uh, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But I'm going to begin very briefly and talk very briefly about the matter from the standpoint of systematic doctrinal and dogmatic theology, since this is a broadcast on theology and constitutes a seminar. That is, you ought to be getting information here at least uh, three years ahead of graduate courses at fundamental universities. So we'll state briefly this. Now, you can take this or leave it because you'd have to have a verse-by-verse -verse study of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to even see it. And you wouldn't find any commentary on Genesis, because the commentaries have all been correct in the King James Bible and have lost the train of thought. But to be as brief as possible, one, angels are 33-year-old males without wings. So any book on angels that doesn't tell you that, you know what to do with that. Number two, Adam is made like an angel of the Lord in that he's a 33-year-old male. There is one preeminent distinction, however. Adam is made out of the ground, out of dirt. Angels are said to be spirits. 
Hebrews chapter 1. Adam is not a spirit. Now, it's true, the last Adam, when he came up from the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, impressed his disciples with the fact that he was a spirit. But he corrected this misconception by saying, A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. Luke 24. Which shows that Adam and Christ were very similar. So much so that Jesus Christ is called the image of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And Adam is said to be made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This means when Adam was made, he was made out of the ground. He was made like Christ, except for one notable exception, which you'd better note. Adam had a circulatory system of water. Christ had a circulatory system of blood, and it was, quote, God's blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. When did Adam get his blood? When he took something to the mouth he shouldn't have taken. You are what you eat. Now here we have access to five scientific facts demonstrable by the living word of the living God which no unsaved scientist in the United Nations could even discuss because of his lack of scientific knowledge. The first public miracle in the Old Testament is Moses turning water to blood. The first public miracle in the New Testament is Christ turning water to wine, a type of blood. Therefore, in the Old Testament, angels or angelic beings have some kind of a system where what goes into the mouth affects the body. For example, if an angel took blood orally, are you listening? You people waste your time watching spook shows when you ought to be reading the Word of God. You people worry about UFOs and don't even know what they are, where they're from, when the Lord already told you what they were and where they're from. If an angel took blood orally, he'd have a circulatory system with blood in it, and he could reproduce, although he would lose his first estate. Jude, Genesis 6. So what Adam and Eve saying, they take something orally that affects their circulatory system, and they inherit the blood that now flows in your veins, and the life of the flesh is in the blood, and that's why you die, and your mother dies, and your father dies, and your grandmother and grandfather died, and your grandchildren are going to die. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and your blood is no good. You say, what has the great God of science done about this in the last 6,000 years? Answer, absolutely nothing. And every scientist who ever investigated science and made a scientific achievement or advancement of any nature died and rotted because his blood was no good. If you don't get a blood transfusion from something higher than an angel, your goose is cooked. We'll discuss this further on our next broadcast. Until then, good day.